2: And welcome to History of the Great War, episode 20. This is our second episode covering the events of 1915, so we will of course spend most of the episode talking about what the French did in the last few weeks of 1914. Today we will discuss two French offensives that began at roughly the same point in time, the last two weeks of December 1914. These two offensives occurred in the Artois and in the Champagne region, and one of the reasons that they are notable is the fact that they are one of the first large-scale French attacks after the line in the west began to settle down, and the Germans began to heavily entrench their lines on the front. These battles would be called the First Battle of Artois and the First Battle of Champagne, and they will be just the first in a series of battles in these areas during 1915. In early November, the French General Staff, or GQG, began planning for more offensives. Neither the GQG nor Joffre believed that the Germans would leave French soil voluntarily, so they knew that they would have to attack to push the Germans back. GQG and Joffre considered many different strategies and operations that they could undertake late in 1914 to begin the process of retaking France. One key component in all of these strategies and operations was that the British should take over more of the line from the French. The parts of the line that Joffre wanted the British to occupy were north of Ypres, and were currently held by French troops, who had ended up there after the race to the sea had concluded in early November. There were two primary reasons that the French wanted the British to take over this part of the line. The first was strictly to free up French troops for the upcoming operations, and the second was that the line was arranged in a French-British-French patchwork from north to south, and this caused all kinds of logistical problems as both sides had to share the same roads and railways behind the front. The British wouldn't end up being as receptive to this idea as the French hoped, but they continued their planning under the assumption that it would happen. The first assessment released by the Operations Bureau of the General Staff was completed on November 15th, but Joffre didn't like it, and so it was never officially approved. He wanted the Bureau to go back to the drawing board, and at the end of November they presented another study around the possibility of an offensive. The first piece of the Bureau's assessment, was that the small offensives that Joffre had ordered the French generals to continue in the previous weeks as a way of keeping the fighting spirit of the French troops intact was a massive waste of manpower and munitions. At the same time, as they were critical of these small attacks, they were also realistic about the fact that there simply weren't enough resources to make an offensive along the entire front. There weren't enough men, or guns, or ammunition for the guns to make such an undertaking even remotely possible. What the Bureau would propose was a few well-prepared attacks against specific portions of the front, with distinct objectives that would cause the most harm to the Germans. These specific attacks would allow for, gathering of powerful means of actions in these areas that would give the attacks the greatest chance of success. The Bureau suggested that the two attacks, with the first one in Artois in the direction of Cambrai, to be undertaken by the 10th Army. They believed that if this attack was launched in late November, it would have the greatest chance of success, and successfully rendering the German line, and forcing them to retreat to the Meuse River. The second attack would occur in the south, in the Champagne region, by the 3rd and 4th Armies. The objective of this attack would be to capture the town of Sweep, and then Mezières. If the French troops managed to get to, and capture Mezières, they would control the important rail and roadways that ran through the city. These were important to the Germans, as they allowed them to quickly and easily move troops and supplies behind the front. These two attacks, one in Artois and one in Champagne, would attack the huge German salient, known as the Noyon salient, that protruded towards Paris. The question became which attack would be the primary point of effort. Even with only two large attacks, the French would still find it difficult to muster enough munitions to support the infantry, so it was originally thought that one attack would be the primary and would receive the lion's share of the supplies, and the other attack would be a supporting attack. They first favored Artois as the primary point of effort, and then a week later they began to favor Champagne, and then a few days later they just decided that both attacks should have equal priority. Joffre liked the idea of both attacks having equal priority when it came to mini and munitions, and he began to prepare for both offensives. In hindsight, the French probably would have benefited from focusing on one of these attacks instead of both. However, even with the additional resources, it is unlikely that either attack would have achieved the goals set out for it. Later attacks in 1915 in the exact same areas would have greater resources with much the same result. Joffre would even acknowledge the fact that the French may not have enough to pull off both attacks in a letter to Grand Duke Nicholas of Russia, when he said that if they were to fail, it would probably be because the French didn't have the means to make them happen. By late November, the preparations were well underway, and to go along with these two primary attacks, there would be several smaller supporting attacks along the entire front. The 8th Army would attack to the south of Ypres, the 2nd Army to the north of Peron, and the 3rd Army in the Argonne Forest, and finally, the 1st Army, east of Saint-Mihiel. These attacks would not be given the resources of those at Artois and Champagne, but they had two main objectives, and here I will just quote Joffre. The objective of these attacks is twofold. Hold the enemy in front of us in order to facilitate the general action of allied forces, and make a breach in one or more points in the front, then exploit the success with reserve troops by taking the enemy in the rear and forcing him to retreat. Before the battles would begin, Joffre would send a message to the French troops, and I'm quoting again, The hour of attack has sounded. After having contained the attack of the Germans, it is necessary now to smash them and liberate completely the occupied national territory. This was the beginning of the last great French offensives of 1914. We will first look at the Artois offensive today, since it started a few days before the one in Champagne. I love this quote from General Fayol, who was one of the commanders of one of the divisions that would take part in the attack. This was written in his diary before the attack began. And I quote, This project appears stupid. Insane to me. Failure will not result in any catastrophe, since we have our line of trenches from which the enemy will not chase us but it will result in a terrible consumption of men, without any gain. The worst part of the entire situation is that Fayol would end up being correct in his predictions for the events that would soon occur. The attack was scheduled to begin on December 17th, with the first objective being Vimy Ridge, just north of Arras. Vimy Ridge is a low ridge that began near the small village of Shushi, and then ran to the southeast. Some of the notable hills on the ridge were given numbers to denote them, and two of the most prominent were Hill 119 and Hill 140. Throughout the war, and especially over the next few years, we will be discussing a lot of hills with numeric designations. Numbers were, and still are, often used to denote geographic terrain features that are otherwise too minor to have a common name. On the east side of the ridge, and behind the German lines, were the French villages of Givenchy, Femi, and Fabu. After these villages was a plain, and then the village of Doy. This village, and the plain on which it sat, was the ultimate goal of the attack at Artois. Doy was a rail and road center, used by the Germans, and the French hoped that by capturing it, they could make all of the northern sections of the Noyon salient untenable. The attack would be carried out by three army corps from the French 10th Army. The primary attack was by the 33rd Corps, commanded by General Philippe Pétain. Pétain is one of those generals that seems to play at least some part in every single major French battle in the war, even if he didn't. He will be present here, and then at Verdun, and then at Arras, and finally as the commander of the French forces, but for right now he's just a corps commander, and a corps whose goal was to capture the village of Vimy from the Germans. The 21st Corps would also launch supporting attacks against Sushi, and then hopefully, when that was captured, they would move on to Givenchy. To support the attack, the French would amass 632 artillery pieces, pretty much every gun that the 10th Army had, plus some given to them by Joffre for the offensive. Before the attack, the infantry used some tactics that will come to be used later in the war, and that is digging trenches progressively closer to the German lines before launching the attack. This was an old tactic used during sieges for centuries. You would have a line of trenches, and then you would dig a trench perpendicular to it toward the enemy. You would go some set distance toward the enemy, and then dig another perpendicular trench, this time parallel to the enemy trench line. By doing these actions, the French soldiers could slowly move their jumping off point closer and closer to the German lines, and thereby reduce the amount of time that they were exposed in no man's land. I am pretty sure this is the first time that it has been specifically called out as a tactic used on the battlefield in the war. It is just one example of the many tactics learned as far back as Roman times being adopted to the new realities of the battlefield. After Joffre's reorganization of the command structure of the French armies, General Foch was in overall command of the operation, since he commanded all of the northern French armies. And he made it clear to General Mahou the commander of the 10th army, that it was very important to have careful and thorough preparation for the attack. He wanted to make sure that Hu didn't move his attack forward too quickly. Foch would describe the battle as needing to have, quote, the character of a siege, which its method and slowness. This is in stark contrast to the message sent by French commanders in the first months of the war, where they believed that the French troops should attack and attack fast, and not stop as long as their feet could carry them forward.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right, The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
1: Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The first battle of Artois would begin on December 17th, and right from the start, it didn't go well. None of the attacks met their objectives. The 21st Corps captured less than a kilometer of enemy trench, and just so I'm clear here, that doesn't mean they actually advanced a kilometer. They merely captured a kilometer section of the German first trench line. They were, however, at least able to hold on to the trench, which was better than the 33rd Corps, who were supposed to make the main thrust of the offensive they didn't make any progress at all. After the initial waves of the attacks that were costly and achieved very little, the French began to concentrate their strength on the small village of Currency. They kept battering away for ten days until the 27th, when they were finally able to advance about 700 meters. Immediately after this 700 meter advance was made, the Germans counterattacked, during which the French lost most of that 700 meters. The last few days of December and the first few of January saw the attack halted due to inclement weather. And on January 5th, Joffre effectively ended the attack when he transferred 15 infantry battalions out of the 10th Army and moved them far to the south. It would be eight more days before the offensive was officially suspended on January 13th. The result of the battle was very disappointing for the French. For three weeks of effort and thousands of casualties, they had gained essentially nothing. In the south, the battle in Champagne wouldn't go much better. Here, the 4th Army, commanded by General Fernand de Langade de Carré, a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War, would participate in a battle that would last from December 20th, 1914 all the way to March 17th, 1915. When giving his orders to the troops, he would state, The purpose of the operation is to make a breach in the enemy line. Simple. This breach would be along a 25-mile front in the Champagne region of France. The goal was to punch a hole in the German lines and reach the rail junction of Méserée. Much like in the north in Artois, the hope was that the capture of this important rail junction would throw the German front into disarray and result in the retreat of the German troops closer to Germany. To accomplish this task, the French amassed 250,000 troops, against what they believed to be about 150,000 Germans of the 3rd Army. The French Fourth Army contained four corps: the Seventh, Seventeenth, Second, and the First Colonial. The Twelfth and the Seventeenth would play the primary role in the attacks, with the First Colonial making supporting attacks to the south. The Second Corps would be held in reserve, ready to exploit any weakness in the German lines. The attack would be located on the right-hand side of the Twelfth Corps and the left-hand side of the Twelfth of the Seventeenth Corps, where they came together. Both corps were used and only part of each corps, because the French believed that by using two attacks by two different corps, they would have a better chance of success. The theory was that if the first assaults were stopped, or more men were needed to exploit a breakthrough, the corps-level commanders could feed fresh troops in and launch additional attacks without having to dip into the army reserve or having to wait for them to be released from the said reserve. Really, this is a pretty good plan. Anything to make reserves more readily available was a very important improvement to attack plans. Throughout the first years of the war, and we will see it time and time again in 1915, even when the German front was broken, the reserve troops that were supposed to exploit the breakthrough were not close enough to the line to beat the German reserves arriving in line to close the breach. Unfortunately for the French, this wasn't the only part of the equation that they needed to solve. The French had, however, amassed 700 guns to support the attack, Almost 500 of these, being the 75mm gun, and the rest were of other calibers, all the way from 65mm up to 120mm. They had also managed to stockpile a sizable amount of ammunition, at least for this early part in the war, with 350 rounds for each 75mm gun. While this would be dwarfed by other efforts later on, the gunners probably felt like they had an almost infinite number of shells. The plan was to use this ammunition in two different stages, The first stage was a preliminary bombardment to cut the German barbed wire, and the second phase would be a brief and really intense bombardment of the German trenches right before the infantry assaulted. The first stage was extremely crucial. If the French artillery were unable to cut some paths through the German wire, the French infantry would be almost helpless as they tried to advance across no man's land, and right into the teeth of German defenses. As I said earlier, the attack would begin on the 20th of December 1914 with the 17th and 1st Colonial Corps attacking along their sectors of the front, with the 12th Corps attacking the next day. On the first day, the 17th and the 1st Colonial made some small gains. Not what was expected of them, but enough to still call them gains. However, when the 12th Corps launched their attacks on the second day, they ran into a problem. All along their front, the artillery had cut some paths through the German wire. But due to some unluckiness and poor planning on the part of the French, all of these paths were covered by heavy German machine-gun fire. As the men of the 12th Corps were funneled through these breaches, the machine-guns had an almost insurmountable advantage. The attacks would continue for several more days, with little gain beyond what was achieved on the first day of the attack. With these attacks so far unsuccessful, De Lengo began shifting his focus to the center of his front, and the vicinity of the village of Perthes. He planned to launch an, a new attack on December 30th, with a division from the 2nd Corps, to this point held in reserve. Unfortunately for this new attack, right before it was getting ready to launch, the Germans attacked instead. This attack fell on the far right of the French line, and allowed the Germans to capture several lines of trenches and inflict heavy casualties. The French were able to regain most of the lost trenches and counterattacks over the next day, just in time for the Germans to launch another attack, This attack was really four major attacks, all launched at the same time across the entire 4th Army front. This attack drove the French back from most of their gains of the previous days, particularly in their closest positions to Perth's. After being driven back, the French again counterattacked. This time they were able to recapture the trenches they had lost in the previous German assault. The French were also able to finally push the Germans out of Perth's. Now I went through that rather confusing series of events just to demonstrate the seesaw nature of this and many other battles. This would be the template for most of the trench battles of the coming year. The Entente forces would attack. They would make some marginal gains, which the Germans would then counterattack, generally driving them back from some of those gains. Then the Entente troops would attack again, then the Germans would counterattack again, and then so on and so forth. The really crazy thing about these attacks, and the counterattacks, is that the advances would be measured in meters. In the final push by the French that gained them the village of Perth, their advance was only a few hundred meters, and it would be the largest advance of the entire battle. I can only imagine how disheartening it was for the soldiers of both sides, those that managed to survive the attack only to be constantly gaining ground and then losing it again. There are stories in the Battle of Champagne, and in many other battles, of units who finally reached their objective after suffering horrible casualties, only to then be annihilated by German counterattacks. The French attacks would continue for the next few weeks, with the Germans counterattacking in kind, with the result of very little gain being made by either side, before the large attacks were called off on January 13th. Small attacks would continue for another two months, all the way into March, with the result of another 40,000 French casualties. The battle in total resulted in over 95,000 French casualties, and 45,000 German casualties. After the battle, as he reflected on the course of what had just happened, de believed that the offensive, at least initially, had fit well within the suggested French attack strategy at the time. Instead of masses of men attacking along a long front, he had launched a series of attacks against specific points in the line. He began to question the ability of these types of attacks to result in victories for the French. Joffre did not believe that the French strategy was flawed, and instead chalked up the failure to insufficient and too brief artillery support, too few personnel engaged on a front that was too narrow. In fact, that artillery preparation seemed pretty sufficient at the time, but it wasn't enough to break through the trenches, and it would be dwarfed by preparations later in the year. Joffre would write to de Langle shortly after the battle, and as quoted in Pyrrhic Victory by Robert Dowdy, he would say, It is only by the shock of incessantly repeated blows against the enemy that you will be able to obtain the success that one has the right to expect from an army as powerful as the 4th Army. One final note on the action in the last few weeks of December 1914, before we wrap up the story for today. Those supporting attacks I mentioned earlier, they were launched in support of the battles at Artois and Champagne, but they didn't really gain anything. Some of the attacks would end up being launched without any artillery support at all, like those launched by the 2nd Army north of Peron. In the Vosges Mountains, the artillery guns of the attack were so short of artillery ammunition that they couldn't begin their barrages until the infantry began their advance. In the two battles we showcased today, the French couldn't make any real progress with as much artillery support as they could muster. I am sure you can imagine how it went for the infantry without any artillery support at all. By the end of January, all of the attacks were winding down. They had gained a maximum of 500 metres, and along most of the fronts, the attacks didn't gain anything at all. The French would begin to learn important lessons when it came to attacking the Germans in their prepared, entrenched positions. Their tactics at Artois and Champagne revolved around close coordination between infantry and artillery. They wanted to maintain as much control over the chaos as possible, and the infantry had to maintain a strict time schedule even if they could have advanced faster. De was one general who began to question this method of attacking, and noted that even though he followed these tactics, it had not been very successful. He started to consider, much like other generals will in the coming year, that it may be better to do quick, small, successive attacks that were focused on small, achievable objectives. This will actually be where the Entente tactics will end up in 1917, when they are still attacking a well-prepared German army, but we have a long way to go, and many advancements in tactics before we get there. Joffre drew other lessons from Artois and Champagne that will lead the French temporarily down a different path. The Germans were having success in their counter-attacks when launching across a wide front, just like those against the 4th Army in Champagne. Joffre wrote to his generals and instructed them to use wider attacks for future offensives. We will get to see these changes in tactics right in the same locations in Artois and Champagne when we revisit them several more times this year. Next week, we will make our first trip to the Eastern Front in 1915, as the armies of Austria-Hungary try to push the Russians out of the Carpathian Mountains and out of Galatia, in some of the worst combat environments I have ever read about. I have written an article on some of the source material for this and many other episodes this year. If you would like to check it out on the podcast website at historyofthegreatwar.com. Many books were used in the making of these episodes, and if you are enjoying what you're listening to, some of them get my highest recommendation. Also, since it's been a while, I will end this episode by asking everyone, if they have a moment, to leave a review for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. It is a huge help in making sure the podcast is as visible as possible.